You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. We have an incredible group of people here in this audience, not just in this room, but in our overflow room. And so for all of those who want to follow, we also are now on Twitter. So you can uh, follow us online at eCorner. And in fact, um, we encourage you, if you want to go and listen to any of the archived podcasts, if you go to ecorner.stanford.edu, you can listen to all the podcasts of the past lectures for the past, I don't know, five or six years. Uh, it is my extreme pleasure to introduce our guest today. We have Jensen Huang, who is the co-founder of NVIDIA. And I want to tell you, 18 years ago, he was sitting in your seat. He was an MS student, a master's student here in electrical engineering. Only two years after he graduated, he founded the company. And he has been the president, CEO, and a member of the board of directors since its inception. But one of the most wonderful things about having him here today as our kickoff of spring quarter is he is also the incredibly generous donor to the School of Engineering. The new building that you see going up just outside is going to be named the Wank Building. And he gave $30 million to name that building. So hopefully 18 years from now, you guys will be doing the same. So uh, without further ado, we have Jensen Wang. Thank you. Thank you, Tina. I gave my last, last pennies to Jim Plummer to build that building. I am now officially broke. Uh, so um, instead of giving you a, a company presentation today, what I thought I would do is just have a conversation with you. Uh, you know, at any time, if you have a question, uh, if you would like to change the direction of our, of our conversation, just raise your hand and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about whatever comes up. Um, a lot of people talk about and write about uh, building companies. And I can tell you firsthand that building a company is extraordinarily gratifying. It is also incredibly hard. And so the things that, that, um, uh, that you want to talk about uh, with respect to the company building process uh, is rather uh, expansive. You could talk about company building processes uh, from a lot of different perspectives. And so I'm going to try to touch on a few of them that I think are, are particularly uh, important in my experience. So 16 years ago, uh, NVIDIA had three people, three engineers. Uh, I was one of them. And, um, uh, and we had a perspective. Am I still on? Did I, did I do something? Was it me? Uh, we had a perspective that, um, uh, that if we <laughs> you know, I was just talking to those two. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went in the back to talk to those two guys, and I asked them, so, so this is where command center is. And he, they go, um, yep. And I said, so how, do you guys get paid for this? And they, they said, nope. Uh, now I understand why. <laughs> you think it's me? How about if I just did that? See, it's, <laughs> you can't be, you can't be, you can't control user stupidity, you know? You're good, you're good. It was probably me, I was sitting on it. All right, so, so um, uh, 16 years ago, uh, we started NVIDIA, and um, the, the, uh, the insight that we had, uh, some people call it vision. Um, uh, vision's an awfully big word to me. Vision's an awfully big word to me because I, I believe, first of all, vision matters. Let me tell you that vision matters, and I'll help you understand that in a second. Um, but I like to use the word perspective because it makes it possible for anyone to have one. When you say vision, it feels like only a few selected visionaries of the world can have one. But everyone has a perspective, and that's in fact all vision means. That you see the world uh, in a way that is either uh, different um, or uh, otherwise. Okay, than, than somebody else. Uh, and you see opportunities that I think are, that you believe are particularly important to go and address, that you can address uh, in a particular way. And so perspective. Um, our perspective at the time, this is 1993, uh, you guys won't, won't remember this, but uh, the, uh, the PC 
um, was Windows 3.1. Uh, CD-ROM uh, was uh, about to be introduced. Uh, there were no PCs with networks. Um, wireless technology, uh, the note, if you said some, if somebody said radio, uh, I think you would, the word that would come to mind is FM radio. Uh, and so wireless technology didn't exist. Uh, the fastest microprocessor uh, in the world was a 66 megahertz 46DX2. Uh, and I don't think any of you would even use it uh, in your tennis shoes today. Um, and we would run our computers with that. Uh, and uh, the PC was, was uh, becoming used uh, for uh, desktop or for office automation. Uh, our perspective was that this particular uh, device was going to be unique in the sense that it has the ability to run programs. And what if uh, we uh, gave it the benefit of running 3D graphics programs so that um, uh, you could uh, explore new worlds, play games, um, you know, play games. And so uh, we started a, a company, and, and the business plan uh, basically uh, read something like this. We're going to take uh, technology that was available only in the most expensive workstations. We're going to try to make it, reinvent the technology and make it inexpensive. And um, uh, the killer app was video games. Uh, and so I, I took this idea to Sand Hill Road, uh, and, um, uh, and they told me there was no video game market. People don't start companies to play games. And um, uh, my parents, my, uh, I remember calling my mom and telling her that I'm going to start this company. And she says, you know, what, did you, what do you guys do? And I said, we built these things called 3D graphics chips, and, and um, uh, people would use them to play games. And, and then she, she said, why don't you go get a job? <laughs> and, and so... And, and so um, uh, now, of course, of course, games was, was we believe, uh, going to be a very large part of the marketplace. Now, we had that perspective uh, for very obvious reasons. We grew up in the video game generation. I was the video game generation. I was the beginning of the video game generation. And so the, the entertainment value of video games, uh, computer games, was very obvious to me. And I could imagine how it could be a very large market and a very large industry. For a lot of the people that were older, that sensibility didn't exist. And so notice, I've just described to you a perspective about the world that we had that is apparently, obviously now true, because video games is the world's largest digital media industry today. Um, it is apparently true. And yet, at the time, uh, our common sense was unique. Nobody would have created the technology, nobody would have created the company with the sole purpose of building technology to make video games possible. And so that was our perspective. Now we felt that, that um, video games would, would of course fuel the technology uh, development, uh, but you could use this technology for a whole bunch of other, other reasons. And um, uh, one of my favorite, favorite uh, applications, uh, this happened about, um, I guess about five years ago, uh, a small company, struggling company here in Silicon Valley uh, called Keyhole. And um, uh, they, were, they created a, a 3D virtual world. And it had no application. This 3D virtual world, you start out in space, you see the Earth, you zoom into any location you wanted just by typing in the address. I thought it was such a fabulous way of exploring the world, going to places you've never been. And they couldn't raise a penny. And so uh, we, uh, we, uh, um, uh, I was so excited about the company, we put money into the company. And I went everywhere and showed that demonstration. I would tell people that this is the way we're going to do search someday. If you want to search for something, uh, look for a, an address, you would type it in, and we would fly you there. Okay? And, and uh, satellite images will continue to download. And before you know it, you're right there on the street. And you might even see some buildings. Uh, that that uh, small company. Uh, was uh, eventually purchased by Google and uh, became Google Earth. Google Earth is now uh, the single largest downloaded, most frequently downloaded application in the history of mankind. Over 200 plus million downloads. Um, so 3D graphics could be used for a, lot, uh, for a lot more than video games. Now that, that vision, if you will, that perspective, um, 
was unique at the time and hard to sell. And so we had to go and explain it to venture capitalists who had to figure out whether the technology was going to be possible, how big was the market, because it was zero billion dollars at the time. So how do you extrapolate, how do you scope the size of a market when its apparent size was zero at the time? And you look at um, uh, analyst reports and uh, you study market research and all of it would say approximately zero. It would never show up. It's a non-category, a non-market. Uh, and so uh, it, you know, it's incumbent upon uh, the, uh, the venture capitalist uh, and of course the founders to try to figure out how to inspire each other into doing something together. And so uh, Sequoia Capital and Sutter Hill were our venture capitalists. Um, and um, uh, we got the company going with $2 million. Now, the, the question about perspective uh, becomes uh, very interesting uh, in, other, uh, in other opportunities in the company, other, uh, other circumstances in the company. And let me give you some examples. Um, many years later, uh, Sequoia Capital uh, came to me and said, you know, there's a couple of kids at Stanford, and they have this thing, and it's, a, it's an internet thing, and you just type in you know, what you're looking for, and it shows up, you know, puts up the web, website. And, um, and I said, yeah, yellow pages. I mean, you know, no duh, right? We use it, we, and, and there's a variety of, of um, versions of it on the web at the time. Uh, we use the internet just like everybody else to, to do FTP and also to um, uh, visit various websites. Uh, and, um, and they said, should we invest in this company? And I said, there's no freaking way they're going to make money. That stuff is free. Right? And so they said, well, you know, we can't figure it out ourselves, but it doesn't cost much to give them a, a million or two. Uh, and, uh, and they invested in a small company called what eventually became Jerry's company called Yahoo. Um, notice, although I had the perspective about one thing, I didn't have the perspective about something else. Just because you're a visionary doesn't mean you're a visionary by everything. Your perspective stems from your life experiences, what's commonsensical about you, what's interesting to you. Um, and, uh, and so that's important to, to realize, that you have perspective too. Therefore, you have vision too. Now what's interesting about these websites, like, to, to, to follow on the Yahoo story, if you remember, there were several other searches out there. Um, AltaVista at the time. Um, Excite at the time. Lycos at the time, right? And now the question is, they're all doing search, and they all did a reasonably good job. Now comes the question is, what was their perspective? How did they, how was their perspective different from one another? One website thought that they were a destination. Do you guys remember that? We would be a destination, kind of like a channel. Uh, somebody said, in fact, since we're going to be a destination, we would serve up content. And therefore, the search part of it is a commodity. We'll outsource that. So all of the search engines, which started out as search, turned into destinations or portals, and they outsourced the search to someone else, which made it possible for Google to start. And so notice two companies doing exactly the same thing started with the exact same fundamental core technology, ended up in radically different places because they had different perspectives. They saw the world differently. So perspective matters. Vision matters. Now in our industry, uh, shortly after we were started, uh, 3D graphics for PCs and, and consumer 3D graphics became the hottest, hottest thing. And so everybody in Silicon Valley was starting a 3D graphics company. We were, um, in 1993, the only consumer 3D graphics company in the world. Silicon Graphics uh, up the street was the professional if you will, uh, 3D graphics company. Uh, by the end of a couple of years or so, 1995, uh, there were probably 50, 70 startups doing exactly the same thing we were trying to do. And over time, we competed with about 200 companies. NVIDIA today is the only surviving computer graphics company in the world. And so the question is then, what happened? Competition is intense. Everybody has smart people. Everybody has money. 
We competed with IBM. We competed with HP. We competed with Silicon Graphics. We competed with Sony, 3DFX, S3, Sirius Logic, big, small, international, local. We competed with companies all over the world. So the question is, what happened? Um, I would argue that, that um, uh, 300 companies armed with exactly the same technology, armed with exactly the same people, the company that wins, and let's say they all execute, and they did. With 300 companies, you know, 50% of them are going to execute at any given point in time. And so the question is, why does one survive? Well, I think that it matters to have perspective, and let me give you some examples. Um, I always believed that uh, you need to understand the reason why your business work. What is the essence of your business? What makes it work? Now, the foundation of my business, uh, at its core, is semiconductor technology. Here in Silicon Valley, we, we usually like to refer to semiconductor technology as Moore's Law. Moore's Law is not so much a physical law as it's a law of competition. It is a law of um, challenging engineers. Um, it's a law almost of setting pace. And Moore's Law approximately gives you twice the performance every year or two. And so understanding that the fundamental ingredient of our, of our business improves by a factor of two every year and simultaneously reduces in cost by a factor of two every year, the question is what makes a survivable business? And so our first perspective was that 3D graphics was insatiable. It was insatiable that if I made something twice as good every year, even if the customer never asked for it, even if the customer told us it was too expensive, even if the customer, when you went to float that product specification to them, told you that they're not interested, and in fact, that was the case. I took, I took our product spec to, uh, to Dell and HP and IBM and Gateway, and they all told me it was too much money. You're well outside of the boundaries of what they were willing to pay for. When your customers all tell you not to do something, the question is then what do you do? In our case, because we had this unique perspective that 3D graphics was insatiable and Moore's Law was our friend, therefore, uh, we should make our graphics processors twice as good every year. And so for the first five years of our company, we just turned off our blinders and said, we're going to ignore customers. Now, which one of, your, of you guys are going to go through your marketing, marketing courses and the lesson that it teaches you is ignore your customers? Well, sometimes you have to ignore your customers. And the reason for that is because they don't know the nature of your business. And while the industry is being created, before there's common sense about the rules of that business, there is no way they can possibly know. And so we, uh, I, I took the last few million dollars of the company's money and uh, built a chip that is way, way, way too big. And uh, our customers told us they, we were way out of bounds on cost and they weren't going to buy any. Until the day we showed up with the processor, we were in allocation through, throughout the entire life of that project until our next generation product, which was twice its price, cannibalized the previous one. And so we grew and grew and grew for several years. Then the question became, uh, what now? Now, you guys are going to learn that innovation is a rather dangerous thing. On the one hand, once you discover a great idea, once you discover a great idea, you rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, and you make that idea better and better and better. Whether it's a laptop computer that you guys have here, or uh, a car, or a microprocessor, or in our case, a graphics processor, we made it better and better every year. At some point, it becomes good enough. Moore's Law is a wonderful thing. Semiconductor technology enables you to make amazing leaps and bounds in technology. And at some point, it becomes good enough. And so in the, um, this is probably in the late 90s, about seven years into our company, maybe six, seven years into our company, I came to the conclusion um, that 3D graphics was not going to be sustainable 
as a uh, accelerator or a fixed function device that renders texture maps and polygons on the screen. That we had to change the company to make the 3D graphics processor programmable so that it could be an artistic medium for expression. Now this is a weird word. Here we are, an engineering company, and we now want to change this chip to become an artistic expression, an artistic medium, so that all of the video games, so that all of the applications that were developed on our chip would be stylistically different. And we believed, unless we could figure out a way to make the content richer and more interesting and stylistically different from one game developer to another game developer to you know, another, uh, we would limit the life of our medium. And if our medium reached this end, we as the, wor the world leader uh, would, also, uh, would also see our end. And so we decided to make the GPU programmable and um, make it a medium for artistic expression and invented a technology called programmable shader. Almost every single video game that you guys see today has our fingerprint on it, whether it's a Xbox 360 or PS3 or any PC game today. You could see elements of what programmable shaders made possible. That started a whole new innovation curve for us and kept our industry vibrant. But the crossing from one generation of technology to the next generation almost killed the company. And so that process of reinventing the company, the perspective that led us to a new idea, also risks the company in the process. And those are interesting conversations that we can have. So there's perspective matters. When a company gets larger, uh, you, guys are, you guys are gonna learn that, that um, uh, as the, the founder or as the CEO, uh, you have to learn new things. And many of the new things that you'll learn has to do with um, I'm building products at first, and I've just talked to you about building products. Soon you'll be talking about and learning about building companies. And building companies means things that are soft and hard to explain, like building a company with a culture. What does that mean? How does the culture of one company different from a culture of another company? And why is it that this particular culture is better for your company and not for another? So the culture of a company is important to find out, to, 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 to put your arms around and to create and develop. Um, how do you organize? Are you, we were just talking earlier with one of the guys. Are you functionally organized? Are you organized in business units? How do you deal with multiple products and multiple geographies and multiple customers? And so that's the company building process. It's mechanical. It's interesting, um, lots of trial and error. It's organic, people matter, personalities matter. Um, and if you guys are interested in talking about that, I'm happy to talk about that as well. And then to, um, I would say probably the, the, um, uh, the most important thing uh, above that is to realize that um, uh, building a, when you're building a company and building a product, skill matters. Intellect matters, training matters, but it's not enough. The part of it that, that, um, uh, that is important to, to realize about building companies is that it's a challenging and painful and uh, oftentimes um, extraordinarily scary thing to do. And so unless you have passion, unless you really love the process of building the company and what you're trying to do, uh, it's going to be incredibly, incredibly challenging. And so what I would, I would, um, uh, I would, I would leave you with is um, when you're building a company, if you decide to build a company, you have to ask yourself what is the purpose that you're building the company for? Is it that you would like to build a company so that you can sell it, make a fortune? Uh, is it that you would like to build a company so you can take it public? Um, you're just a serial entrepreneur. You want to build something, let somebody else run it, build something, sell it. Um, whatever your reason is, be honest to yourself. Uh, it turns out that um, in my case, I just love the process of building things, and I love being part of something. 
You know, being part of NVIDIA and being part of uh, a, um, a people and being part of a cause that is, um, uh, that's inspiring to me uh, keeps me vibrant. And, and it's something that I'm willing to do for a very long period of time. And so I've been in, in it now for 16 years. And um, I've learned a lot in the process of being the CEO and the founder of the company. And so maybe the thing to do is, why don't I open it up now and um, let you guys ask me uh, whatever type of questions you guys have. Yes, sir. What did your, invent what did your investors say about uh, your idea of uh, reinventing your company to include uh, programmable uh, GPUs? Uh, yes, I will. The question is, what did our investors uh, say about uh, about us um, uh, taking the big risk of adding programmable shaders and reinventing uh, reinventing that product category and reinventing our company? Um, First of all, it's not, a, it's not a conversation you really have with your, sh with your shareholders, but you do have the conversation with your, uh, your management team first, uh, your employees second, your board of directors third, typically is the way, the process that I, I take. Um, and um, when, you're in, when you're in high tech, when you're in a technology industry, when the technology moves this fast, if you're not reinventing yourself, you're just slowly dying. You're just slowly dying, unfortunately, at, at the rate of Moore's Law, which is the fastest of any rate that we know. Right? The compounded rate of Moore's Law is pretty unbelievable. I know, so it's scary. And so you have to... Um, uh, and this is, so the question is, but we have a product that's generating a lot of money and it's very successful, how do you cannibalize it? Um, there, is, there, is a, there is a theory that if you don't cannibalize it, someone will, and it surely will be cannibalized. And so um, if you want to be a market leader, you have to take the initiative to cannibalize your own products and have your ideas cannibalize your own ideas. Um, when we, when we um, went from... Uh, a fixed function graphics accelerator, a texture mapping engine for games like Quake 3 and Doom and those kind of games, um, to a programmable shading architecture. Our first chip almost killed the company. It was called GeForce Effects. I don't know if any of you have, have ever um, uh, owned one of those. GeForce Effects is a, is a chip, is a processor that, you know, it's a baby only a mother could love. I mean, it's <laughs> we, uh, we, we took enormous chance in building GeForce Effects, um, but it almost broke our back. But if, it, if we didn't build that chip, uh, I am sure NVIDIA would be dead today. I am absolutely certain we'd be dead. It was one of the, one of the biggest gambles in our history. Uh, we had to create, in, in, instead of a, an API, uh, we had to go to a processor with a language, we call it CG, and a compiler, so it's kind of like a, like a processor. Uh, we introduced a new programming paradigm to the world that it never understood in the beginning. And so it took a lot of evangelism, a lot of marketing, uh, a lot of education. Um, but CG, inventing CG uh, took us to unbelievable places. And um, one, of the, one of our most important uh, work today uh, is related to using GPUs for general purpose computing. And it's um, uh, extraordinary, the, the results of what we're seeing. And it wouldn't have been possible, it wasn't because of CG uh, that we, we started then. Okay, so you, you have to take these leaps. Questions? Yes, sir. Um, some people are sort of see that gaming is sort of moving more towards consoles and away yeah. from PCs. Yeah. Is it harder to make profit with, you know, when you have to negotiate with Sony or Nintendo or whoever, some big company, than it would be when you sell individual cards? Yeah. yeah. Um, the, economics, the economics of it, uh, of um, building anything, ultimately comes down to the amount of competition you have. You don't set the price, the competition sets the price. The market doesn't set the price, the competition does. And so, so um, uh, if your competitor uh, wishes to build PlayStation 3 um, as much as you do, uh, then, then the economics would be challenging. And so, so um, uh, 
there you just need to decide, is it, a, is it an economic decision for you? Uh, for example, uh, there's, um, uh, there are rumors that, that we were not enthusiastic in building some of the game consoles and we were more enthusiastic in building other game consoles. Um, it came down to this for me. I think the, um, uh, you have to realize what is the finite resource, what is the scarce resource that you have as a manager. The function of a manager is to allocate resources properly for the best return. And so if you think about our resources, our resource is the finite number of extraordinary engineers and how much time they have in a day to pursue whatever opportunities that are out there. Now, if the number of opportunities that are out there is less than my supply of engineers, so therefore demand exceeds is less than my supply, then obviously I'm very enthusiastic about it. But if it's the other way around, then the opportunity to build a game console at terrible economics, or any project at terrible economics, is simply not worth it. And so I look at it irrespective of competition. The competition sets the price, but then I get to decide whether I want to engage in that project or not. You are in charge of your own company as the CEO. right? And so we decide whether, whether it's economic. And um, once you decide, then you know, it is what it is. So you, you have to be thoughtful about what is your critical resource. Do you have more of it or less of it than the market demands? Do you have more opportunity or less opportunity than, than, uh, than, your, than your resource can uh, support? And then what's the appropriate return on that investment, uh, thinking about not just your cost, but more importantly, your opportunity cost? Um, and so, so we look at it from that perspective every single time. Tell us a little bit about the culture that you tried to set at NVIDIA. <coughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, the question is, what is the, can I talk about the culture that we're trying to set at NVIDIA? Um, at the core of our company's uh, success is innovation. Now, a lot of companies say innovation is important to their company. Uh, invention is important to their company. Uh, however, I don't believe you can fundamentally say that innovation, that you want as a CEO to nurture the spirit of innovation, to encourage innovation, unless you have a culture of risk-taking. We have to encourage our, our engineers, excuse me, our marketing people, right, all of our employees, to take calculated risks in order to encourage them to take calculated risks, first of all, you have to teach them how to do that. That's a skill, a matter of skill. Then the second part of it is a matter of courage. Most people hate to fail. Do, are you guys, do you guys agree with that? Well, unless you guys want to be successful, let me say it the positive way. If you want to be successful, I would encourage you to grow a tolerance for failure, to develop a tolerance for failure. Now, when I mean a tolerance for failure, I don't mean, gee, what Jensen just told me is sleep in until noon, okay? Don't do any of my homework, flunk out of all my classes because that defines failure, right? That's not what I said. What I said is, what I'm trying to say is that I want you to try things even though it is impossible to calculate precisely that it would lead to success. That your instincts, your intuition, is something you ought to follow. If it wasn't because of following my own instincts, or the founder's instincts, or many of our employees' instincts, why would we be where we are today? And why would we have invented things that the market's never had before, the world's never had before? So you have to have this, this culture or tolerance for risk-taking. But the thing about failure is this. If you fail often enough, you actually might become a failure. And that's different than being successful. And so the question is, how do you teach someone how to fail, but fail quickly? And to change courses as soon as you know it's a dead end. And the way to do that is we call it intellectual honesty. Um, we assess 
on a, per, on a continuous basis whether something makes sense or not. And if it's the wrong decision, let's change our mind. And you know, a lot of people say CEOs are always right and they never change their mind. That doesn't make any sense at all to me, especially when it violates the first principles of what we want the company to become. An innovative company that invents amazing things, that solves problems for the world that it sometimes didn't even know it had. Right? If you want to do that, then you have to cultivate that um, uh, tolerance for risk-taking and you have to then teach people how to fail, but fail quickly and inexpensively, um, and how to be direct with each other um, that, uh, that this is the wrong approach and what's the better approach, and then you know, be flexible enough to change courses and quick. And so that, that type of culture, if you will, um, in today's, you know, if you guys were to start a company and you were build, building a, a website with an internet service of some kind, internet-based service of some kind, with the competition coming from all over the world, and it's 24-7, and ideas take no time to experiment, and it, you know, a particular website or a particular comp company could be throwing ideas out into the world 20 a day. And so unless you are thoughtful about risk-taking and being able to change your mind, reacting to the market conditions, um, and being flexible, how are you going to stay alive? And so you could, you could almost see what I just described in the nature of older companies and the nature of the newer companies. The modern companies, um, if you guys, you guys, I'm sure you guys all go to Google's website, almost every single application's in beta form. They're trying all kinds of stuff, right? They're trying all kinds of stuff. If they call it production and it doesn't work well, you guys would just be upset at them. So they call it beta. Have you noticed? They call it beta, so that they could try a lot of things. And if it fails, take it out. If it's bad, take it out. If it works, do more. And so innovation requires a little bit of experimentation. Experimentation requires exploration. Exploration will result in failure. Unless you have a tolerance for failure, you would never experiment. And if you don't ever experiment, you would never innovate. If you don't innovate, you don't succeed. You'll just be a dweeb. <laughs> That's it. Any other questions? Yes, sir. How did you choose your co-founders and initial um, don't, ever, don't ever go into business with uh, anyone you don't deeply trust. And they were two of my, two of my closest, um, closest colleagues, and I trust them completely. And, and um, uh, they're, they're wonderful friends even today. Yep. Um, so, by the way, as a CEO, selecting people is 99% of the job. What applications do you see driving demand in the general purpose GPU market, which is like, that's going to be like the next So the question is, what, is, what do I see driving the demand for this thing that, that we're, um, uh, we're pushing right now called um, GPU computing? Using the GPU for much more than just graphics. Um, for graphics, there's a, there's a, a model of graphics that uh, we call computational graphics. So, so it's um, using programs to generate the images. Uh, the algorithms are no longer uh, cast in the silicon. The algorithms are actually software. And it could be ambient occlusion, it could be ray tracing, it could be all kinds of interesting algorithms that, that um, people are, are going to explore for the future. We observed, uh, and it was, a, it was in fact, um, this is give you another example of innovation, uh, and, and, and for, with Stanford is, is fabulous. Um, we, when we invented GeForce FX, although it wasn't a very successful GPU for graphics, um, researchers around the world noticed that it had a programming language called CG, C for graphics, and that you could program this GPU to do other things aside from graphics. And it had 32-bit floating point, IEEE compatible 32-bit floating point. And so some smart, some smart researchers, many of them were here at Stanford, just bought a graphics card from Fry's and started writing programs. And they discovered that if they really worked hard and do all these, men, you know, these algorithmic gymnastics, they could get something, an algorithm, you know, it could be nanomolecular dynamics, could be computa computational fluid dynamics, to run 20 times faster. And they couldn't believe it. How do you speed up an application 20 times? Well, 
The interesting observation that we made is that we speed up 3D graphics applications, which is basically <coughs> something you can do in software, a thousand times over a CPU all the time. So what if we took all of those parallel processors that were inside our GPUs and make it completely programmable and expose it through a programming language called C? Right, C and now in the near future C++. Um, imagine, imagine the type of problems we could help solve. And so whether it's weather prediction or seismic analysis or uh, you know, taking your, your CT scans and reconstructing the human image, for the, body, the, 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 the body from it, um, all kinds of very computationally intensive applications, we could accelerate 50 times, 100 times. Now just to put it in perspective, 100 times is in Moore's law time approximately 10 years. Now to put 10 years worth of computing resources in the hands of scientists, researchers, engineers, unbelievable benefits. And so um, the risk was really large, however, to make our GPU even more general purpose because every time you make something general purpose, you know what, right, a Swiss Army knife? It's dangerous because whenever you make something general purpose or a Swiss Army knife-like, you move away from your core business. It's much, much better to have a very specific niche, to have intense focus on a particular market segment. And you guys will learn all of this in marketing. When you make something general purpose, you're all things to all people, you become, you know, what is it? Uh, what is it? Jack of all trades, master of none. Very, very dangerous move. Now, we, we thought that it was just too important for us not to do it, so we decided to make that move. And um, uh, it, it's, it's fabulous results. Okay, so those are some of the, some of the things that we're seeing now. Yes, ma'am. You have mentioned the co-founders of Okay, so her question is, um, we were friends uh, in the beginning, uh, we're friends now, how do we figure out uh, who is the right position and how do we distribute the profits? Yeah. Okay, um, and so I, I won't say anything funny just so I'm not misunderstood. But, but um, uh, all of our pay were identical. And we all had identical share in the company. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's just simply fairness. Now the question becomes governance. There's the part of it which is equity. Equity is another way of saying what's fair, right? So we all had the same salary. All, all three of us were making $100,000 a year. Okay, and we all had a percentage of the company, equal percentage. Now, you can't run a company, though. You can't build a great company when you have three people who has to vote on everything and with equal share of responsibilities. You simply can't. That becomes a leadership question. That becomes a governance question. That becomes a management question, right? That becomes a question about building a great company. Um, I don't recall exactly... Uh, exactly um, uh, the, the conversation, but I think it kind of went like this. All right, Jensen, you're the CEO, right? Okay. That was done. <laughs> that, was, that was basically the process. <clears throat> um, I think that some people are, are uh, you know, I'm not particularly, uh, I'm not, from a personality perspective, I'm not particularly outgoing. And so uh, that, that's not a necess necessity for being a good CEO. Um, but um, as a personality, uh, I've always been able to see around the corners, if you will. I can see around the fuzzy edges. And I think CEOs uh, and um, uh, leaders need to be comfortable with ambiguity. Ambiguity meaning that, you know, what does the future look like? Well, it's hard to say. Some people hate that. Some people just say, Jensen, tell me what you need to have done and for how, with how much resource and by when, okay? Some people rather uh, me tell them that, hey, look, there's this, um, there's this opportunity out there, not sure what it is, not sure how big it is, but it kind of feels like this. Let's go figure it out and let's build a business. Some people can, are very comfortable with that. And so this, this ambiguity um, is, is important to, uh, to, 
to, to be comfortable with, I guess. And I think that all CEOs that are, are very successful are comfortable with ambiguity. And I'm very, I am very comfortable with ambiguity. Yes? Yeah. What percentage of your initial investment was yours? Like, uh, how do you get the rest? And also, like, how many times was your proposal for, an, for help with the investment was mm -hmm. rejected? Mm -hmm. so, so I was 30 years, years old, and I had never taken um, a single business class, and, and I've never taken any marketing classes, and, um, and, and I've never used, never used a, at the time, it wasn't PowerPoint, it was called Persuasion. Um, on, the, on the Mac, it was called Persuasion. And so um, I bought a Mac so I could, I could use Persuasion. And, um, uh, and, uh, and then I tried to create a, a company presentation to take it to venture capitalists. Um, the process kind of went like this. We uh, started, my first official day of work was my 30th birthday, February 17th. And um, uh, we got the company funded and so once we got started, the question is, what are we going to do? You know, how does it all work out? How do we start the company? And so um, we met every day, the three of us, uh, in, in one of the founders' townhouse uh, in Fremont. And, um, and we would get together, and, and there would be nothing to do. I mean, what do you do? You get three guys get together, you just talk, you know? So, so what did you guys do last night? Uh, what, you know, what did you have for dinner? I mean, so you, you talk about that for about six months, okay? And, and the big event of the day would be, um, hey, where do you guys want to go to for lunch? And so, you know, Philly cheesesteak today or, you know, Chinese food tomorrow or whatever. That would be like a big deal. And then after a while, it was like, could you put some donuts in the fridge in the morning for when we come? I mean, so that would be a big deal for a while. And so that lasted for a few months, just the three of us like that. I know it sounds pathetic, but it's, it's, it's true. Because at that time, I'm reading about books on how to start companies and I'm trying to figure out, you know, how to go raise money, and you know what's a venture capitalist, and how do you incorporate the company, and so those kind of things. Uh, pretty soon, uh, I met a I met a met a lawyer. went to a, went to a law firm called Cooley Godward, and um, uh, they helped us incorporate the company. Uh, and um, uh, the amount of money that he he, sa he says, um, you know, we need we need some money from you, so that we could price the shares, and also to incorporate the company. So he says, how much money do you have in your pocket? I said, $200. So he says, okay, give me $200. I gave him $200. And um, uh, for $200, uh, I bought 15%, um, uh, I think it was 20% of NVIDIA. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a good deal. Yeah, 20%, yeah. And then I went, I went back to the house and then went back to the condo and, and uh, they, all, they both gave me $200 and they both got 20%. <laughs> and that's how it worked, literally. <laughs> it's not that much more. You know, don't, here, here's, here's the thing. NVIDIA, I never finished my business plan. <laughs> I know it. I know it. Um, we, we, we never finished a, a business plan. Uh, never could figure out how to finish a business plan, to tell you the truth. Um, and uh, and if, if, uh, if I would have finished that book, and I, I went to went to Borders and got um, uh, Gordon Bell's book, How to Start a High-Tech Company. It's like this thick. If I would have read the whole thing, I would have been dead now. We would have run out of money, run out of time. And so I, I, read, I read the first three, four chapters, and I, you know, I, I got to go to work. And so so I, I um, uh, incorporated the company. They introduced us to um, two venture capitalists, um, and I just went to their office and told them what I'd like to do. Uh, the, the thing that, that gets the company funded, and when, you're, uh, when you get to that point, you just have to remember a few things. Uh, VCs don't invest in, in business plans because business plans are easy to write. I couldn't write it, but other people could. <laughs> right? And so, so um, they invest in this. They invest in great people. And so the, the, so the question is, is do they trust you? Uh, your reputation matters. Your history matters. Um, because, uh, because I had done so much work with um, Andy Bechtelsheim, which was another graduate of Stanford, uh, of Stanford and the founder of Sun, uh, and, the, and worked with uh, the founders of Synopsys and LSI Logic. And, they, and you know, we, we, we were all 
very successful and we did good work, um, your reputation will precede you, even if your business plan writing skills are, are you know, inadequate. And the second thing is you need to have a vision that's sufficiently large to invest in because they, their statistics, their probability of success is rather low. And if they need to put in $10 million, if the market's only $20 million large, they'll never get that $10 million back with, with reasonable return. But if it's a $200 billion market, then of course it's a rather different thing. Okay, so the size of the market. And they wanna know that, that um, at least there is a clever idea that the market has never, never done before. So they, that last part, is probably second, you know, last. I said I said it last because also I think it's the least important. You have to, re, you might have to reinvent yourself over time, and if you want to reinvent yourself, you need to have great people. That's why great people are so important. Okay. Yes, yes sir. sir. Who were some of the people that you considered to be your mentors when you were getting started, and what was some of the best advice that you got from them? Um, so, so the question is what. What, um, uh, who were some of the mentors and uh, what were the best advice I got? Um, I, I truly believe that if you want to be successful, uh, you, you, um, uh, a successful habit is to have the capacity and the willingness to learn from just about anybody. And I do. You know, I learn from just about anybody. And it could be a little thing, it could be a big thing. Um, you know, if it wasn't because of my kids, I, I would be, I would, I would, I would miss the whole internet age. You know, I would have missed YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and, you know, I mean, without, so you, you, need, to, you need to know that, that um, uh, the world changes and, and you want to be able to learn from just about anybody. And so I, I'm surrounded with extraordinarily talented executives and uh, professionals uh, of, of all walks of life. And so you just have to make sure that you're, you're willing to learn from just about anybody. Uh, some, of the, some of the great advice uh, that I've, uh, I've had over the years, um, focus, laser beam focus. You know, don't do too much, do, do a few things well and um, do it with extraordinary intensity. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, focus, focus matters. If you look at what I do with my time, uh, I wake up in the morning and the first thing of my time is NVIDIA and the last thing I do is NVIDIA and I do that 24-7. And if I could figure out a way to do that for another 50 years, we're gonna be a good company. <coughs> Okay. So um, uh, her question is: um, I, uh, She started out by saying that that I was a successful. I'm a successful entrepreneur, and and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and what are my biggest challenges now? And um, uh, considering that I like ambiguity, what's my best estimate of the future for the company or, and, and for myself? Um, uh, the biggest challenge with building a company is the reinvention of the company. Every successful thing needs to be torn down at some point and be rebuilt. It is unfortunate but true. And the reason for that is because the technology either gets good enough, um, and therefore you have to reinvent. And sometimes the invention process is disruptive. Sometimes it's in fact destructive, and it could be it could destroy you could destroy what you have built in the past. And so the reinvention process is very challenging. It's gut wrenching. Takes a lot of courage, and um, it, it really tests your conviction. Uh, in, in the technology industry, reinventing the company every 10 years is almost a necessary thing. And so that's, when I say challenging, I don't mean bad challenging, I think that's fun challenging. I love the process of reinvention. Okay, so that's fun challenging. Uh, what's my best forecast for our company? I think that NVIDIA has the opportunity to become one of the most important technology company, companies in the world. And um, I, hope it, I hope that it does. And my best forecast for me is that um, uh, I am 80 years old, and I'm here talking to students, and I hope I'm still the CEO. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, sir. 
questions about the first few years of your startup is very critical. You have to be survived, make sure your cash is positive. Yes. Yeah. The constant cash flow, this cash is the king like that. So in your NVIDIA case, how do you manage that uh, to get enough cash or, or work? Um, so the gentleman's question is, has to do with, uh, in the beginning, uh, survival is important, cash is king. Um, uh, just so that there's no, no, no ambiguity about this, survival is always important, cash is always king. And so as the CEO, you're either making money, saving money, or raising money. And, and if you're not making money, raising money, and saving money, you ought to be doing those three things. It's, a, it's a, just stay focused on those three things. And so when you're, when, during the beginning, in the early days, I was raising money all the time. As soon as I was done raising this round of money, I gotta raise more money. You know, you're always raising money. Just maybe, maybe there was a week break in between, but I was raising money all the time. I was, as a startup, you're always going out of business, right? That's the definition of a startup, an enterprise that is nearly out of business all the time. <laughs> That's the definition of a startup. <laughs> Question? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> How do you prepare for the leadership succession for your company? Well, because I, wanted, I want this, uh, the question is how do I deal with leadership su succession uh, as a CEO and, and for our company? Well, I want this job until I'm 80, I just said. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, one of the primary roles of a CEO, in order to grow the company, in order to grow the company, in order to make, make NVIDIA one of the most important technology companies in the world and make, make significant contribution to society, in order to do that, you have to cultivate new leaders so that they can have new ideas and grow new businesses and, and you know, maybe run a different geography, run a new, new different product line. And so I spend most of my time these days, most of my time these days, sitting with our general managers and sitting with our leaders and helping them think through strategies and helping them think through challenges and helping them think through um, product roadmaps and helping them think through transitions and you know, um, team building, organization creation, um, you know, how to manage, how to, how to create processes that, that um, last the test of time. Uh, so so you know, these things are, are um, lessons that, that I'm supposed to pass on and I do and I spend a lot of my time doing that. I believe, I believe this, that Succession planning by a priori picking out three people that the board should consider in the case that I get run over by a bus is a toxic, toxic process. I know that it has been, it has been um, uh, thought of as a, as a methodology for leadership uh, um, a succession planning, um, but I think it's just very toxic for the environment because everybody's trying to figure out who got selected and who didn't. Um, I think that it's a much, much better process to focus on ultimately developing the next generation of leaders so that in the case that something happens or I'm not the right CEO anymore, there are many choices for the board to choose from, including outside. Okay, so those are, I think the company building process, focusing on that is the positive way of, of thinking about succession planning. A good question. How about I take one question and that's it? Okay. Yes, yes. It's okay. Any question from, from our Latino crowd here at Saturdays? So her, her, I think, let me see if I could paraphrase the question. Uh, you, you, know, you know friends who have a lot of ideas, but they also have a lot of money, and so they don't really feel that motivated to do something with those ideas. Um, uh, you, know, you know, first of all, uh, money, I hope that if I, if I leave you with anything, uh, money is the only singular reason not to start the company. Because starting companies are, it's a very, very unlikely 
probability to, for success. And so if you're looking for the fortune, and if that is your reason for doing it, you will likely regret the experience. Okay? You, should do, you should start the company and build the company because you just, you so believe in your idea, you so, you're so passionate about it, and you want to build something great. And that is the only reason that you want to do it. And the money that just comes along, um, it's fine. I, I, have, I, have, um, I have plenty of money, but it doesn't motivate me, nor does it demotivate me, because it, it wasn't the reason why I started the company. And so um, I would urge you to ask yourself uh, and for your friends to ask, ask themselves, what is the purpose that they want to start a company? Um, ideas? Ideas are a dime a dozen. There's so many ideas. If you want ideas, you're going to get a lot of ideas in this room. And so ideas don't really matter. Um, you have to have a, a perspective that's unique, that you feel really strongly about it, and that you're willing to persevere almost any challenge to make it happen. That's the reason why you should start the company. Okay? Thank you, everybody. I enjoyed it. listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.